I want to start by telling you about, uh, especially as we just heard about Graham and Shirley's uh, wedding anniversary on Friday. Um, it was my anniversary on Friday as well. <laughs> we haven't been married 50 years though, sadly. Not yet. Um, but anyway, so 11 years ago, Abby and I went on our honeymoon. Uh, and we went to Egypt. Anyone else been to Egypt? Show of hands. A few people have been to Egypt. And we left a cold, wet and rainy England on a Tuesday morning. And we got on an aeroplane and flew for around four hours, possibly. And we landed, at, we landed in Egypt. I couldn't tell you what airport. Uh, we were heading towards Taba, which is where we were going to spend our holiday destination. And as we landed, the aeroplane taxied along the runway and, and then finds its parking space. And there's this moment, which I'm sure those of you who've been abroad to a hot country, which is probably most of us, I would think, in this room, there's this moment where the door opens and you take that step out into the warmth and it envelops you, doesn't it? Do you know that feeling? As you step out and you go, wow, oh my word. And there's that feeling of, we've made it. We are here. The weather is as good as we had hoped. It's perfect. We couldn't have asked for more. You can feel the heat on your skin you can feel it on every square inch of skin. You can feel your clothes. Your clothes are warm. Everything is warm. Your toes are warm. Your ears, your hair, everything is warm. You're like, what is this strange climate I've just walked into? And it is wonderful. It absorbs everything. You feel like you have just been immersed into it. And uh, that's a feeling that I, uh, that I want to share with you. It's something, the more I study this book, the Bible, is, it's not just a random book. The more I study the Bible, the longer I've been a Christian. The, in fact, even the more I've studied this in the last month or so, this book of Romans, I feel as though God's kingdom, God's, God's gospel, the, the rescue plan of God infiltrates its way into every square inch of my life. Every square inch. In the same way that I step out of the aeroplane into that beautiful warmth, and I feel it everywhere. I feel it in my lungs as I breathe in. I realize the longer I've been a Christian, and the more I've studied that, and just in the last few months, that this gospel, God's love for us, God's deliberate plan to rescue and restore relationship with humanity, it, it reaches into every aspect of my life. Every aspect of my humanity bears influence of God's rescue and redemption plan. I find it changes me. It changes my nature. It, it changes the way I think. I find it influences. I find the gospel of God influences my day-to-day -day decisions. How I feel about people. How I feel about people I don't know. How I feel about people who I've never met before. How I feel about people who hate me or dislike me. There aren't too many of those people around as you wouldn't be surprised. Um, but I find that God's, God's, God's rescue plan influences every aspect of my humanity. It influences my understanding of what is right and what is wrong. It makes sense of good and evil in the world. If you don't have a God, then I, I struggle to understand how you make sense of what we call evil and how, what you call good. And I feel like the Christian message helps us understand good and evil in a way that I'm not sure any other message that I've looked into does. I feel like it helps us understand life. I feel like it helps us satisfy 
some of the inexpressible longings that are in my soul. I don't know about you. I imagine every one of us would describe them. If you're a Christian or non-Christian, whether you are Christian or non-Christian alike or follower of God or not, I think you would describe yourself, I imagine most of us would describe ourselves as a spiritual being. We have a capacity. There's something inside us, something deep in us that we have a longing that we are unable to express why. I don't know why that exists in me. I don't know why I care about life after death. I don't know why I care so much about life. Do you know what I mean? There's something inside me that I'm unable to explain. And I find that the Christian message satisfies those deep longings within me like no temporary thing ever could. I find as I step into the climate of God's rescue plan, as I embrace that for myself, it just immerses me in every aspect of my life. But it's not just me that the gospel changes. It's not just us here in 21st century UK. What's interesting is it affects people in very different civilizations and cultures to us. The gospel of God not only makes sense to us and makes sense of our culture that we live in, it makes sense of cultures in the Far East. Last week we had Moshtaba from Iran, who had completely lived in a very different culture. Uh, many, many different gods, many different ideas as to what is the right way to live or what, what is good and what is to be attained or aspired for in life. And, it, and, it, and the gospel, God's rescue plan, reaches him and changes his understanding as well. But not just Moshtaba in Iran, it reaches people all over this earth, but not just today, it reaches people the last 2,000 years. God's plan reaches cultures completely unlike our own, and it transforms people. And I've just been stunned and struck by that recently, particularly as we've been going through this book of Romans. And it's something I just wanted to share with us as I started this morning. And when you've been on holiday somewhere hot and you come back, everyone notices, right? You, you've got this beautiful glowing tan. Yeah, we came back from our honeymoon in about the midweek, or de- uh, second week in December, and we came back, and we were lovely brown color. Everyone notices you've been away. And so it is with this gospel. It changes us. It changes us to a degree. A degree. We, the way we feel about the people, the way we relate to people, it makes us different. We stand out. We start to glow. And I, it's just something that struck me as I've been studying this book of Romans. And I wanted to share that as a start. The gospel of Jesus is fully immersive. It changes every aspect of our humanity if we allow it to. Now last week, Moshtaba spoke uh, about justification uh, which was this legal word for being made right with God and the need to be made right with God. And in it, uh, he used me as humanity. I don't even remember. Martin, I think, called me a swine, which I thought was completely unnecessary. Um, but uh, so we, we looked at what it is to be justified. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue our journey. And, and a little bit of what we're going to be talking about focuses on being made right with God and the implications of it. But to do that, we're going to be studying Romans chapter 5, and we're going to be reading from verse 6 through to 11. So um, if we could have that up on the screen. Um, I've got my Bible here, but it's a different translation, so I'm going to hold it, but I'm going to read what's up there. Uh, It makes me feel like I'm doing something. Uh, So verse 6 reads like this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. 
But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Next verse, verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more then, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. I feel like that's one of the most captivating passages in the, in the Bible. As I've been studying that this week, I'm just amazed by it. And, and there's so much that I want to unpack this morning. <laughs> uh, but I, I'd like if we could start by just closing our eyes and I'll pray. Because um, there's a lot. I, I can only do so much. So much like, but I'd, I'd like to invite God's Holy Spirit to, to speak to us. So why don't you close your eyes. And Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have not left us as orphans but in your love you have set about a plan in which you might repair the relationship between us and yourself and God I just pray I ask that as I communicate that message this morning that you would speak to our hearts that you would soften our hearts and that we would see would receive the good news of the love of God demonstrated in Jesus amen Amen. So I believe that this passage is written to help Christians like you and I and the church in Rome have a deep, unshakable assurance of the love of God. Now I've recently been reading a book by David Bennett who is a, a gay activist completely against Christianity and he said that in his life he had been longing for love. He had searched and had a quest, really longed to be loved, longed for a meaningful relationship. And he had journeyed and struggled with this and he'd seen, uh, as he went through life, he just felt himself feeling unsatisfied and unfulfilled. And he said that in his quest for love, what he noticed was that love was a good thing, but it, it wasn't, it was really a what people really desired and what was wanted most out of any relationship was the ultimate was, was sexual expression. And he felt that in his journey, everyone wanted that was the ultimate. And love was a nice thing that was a good thing, great, but what we really after is that. And he said until he found the love of God, he was unsatisfied and unfulfilled. And every relationship was good, but it didn't give him the security and the hope that he wanted and he longed for. And what I want to put to you is that the love of God does fulfill us in a way that no other love can. This passage is the greatest love story. This book is the greatest love story we've ever heard, we've ever known. And we love a good love story. Apart from my son, I've got uh, three sons, as you probably all know, and my youngest son, Sam, hates it when any love is shown on TV. It's hilarious. So we're, we're watching like a cartoon, I can't remember, I think it's like Peppa Pig or something, and uh, something ridiculous. And Mummy Pig says to Daddy Pig, I love you. And Sam went, aww. <laughs> and, uh, 
he, he hates it. If, if I show any affection in the house towards Abby, he's like, Dad, stop it. <laughs> um, but the older I get, the more I enjoy a good romantic comedy. I never thought I'd say that, <laughs> especially out loud and recorded. <laughs> we might have to delete that. Uh, edit that one, please. Um, the older I get, I love a good love story. They're, yeah, they're great. Uh, well, well, I don't need to go into that anymore. Uh, and perhaps it's because it's, um, so, uh, so I, f- I was so excited to share this, but I feel so daunted now by the fact that Graham and Shirley have been married 50 years. Abby and I have been married 11 years. Yeah, well done us. Um, and, uh, and on Friday, same date, 22nd, Abby and I got married 11 years ago. And perhaps I'm feeling a little romantic and nostalgic and perhaps sentimental. But as I've studied this passage, I'm just amazed by God's commitment to us. And I want to unpack it. We're going we're to unpack it verse by verse or couple some of the verses. Um, because what I believe they show us, and what I, like I said before, is Paul wants us to be assured of the love of God. And I'm going to show us how he does that. So if we have verses, uh, chapter 5, verse 6 up on the screen, uh, and we've got 7 as well there. We're just going to read verse 6. So you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And if we could now have verse 8 up there as well. Oh, back one. It is there, isn't it? There it is. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul wants us to see in these two verses, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for us, verse 6, verse 8, but God shows his love for us that in while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Paul wants us to see God takes the initiative. It's not you, it's not I, it's not my impressive works or my behavior or anything I've done, it's not my character, God takes the initiative. Christ died for the ungodly, verse 6, while I was still weak, verse 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God takes the initiative. In other words, you've done nothing to earn or deserve God's love at this point, right? This is long before you or I. We've done nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it, nothing to guarantee his love. And yet he shows it to us while we were still sinners or opposed to him. While we were in our rebellion, while we were searching our own way trying to figure out our own way of life, trying to do everything we could to reject God and his plan and just, you know what, it's a nice idea, but I'd rather not. God chooses to show his love for us by sacrificing himself while we were in our sin, while we were in our rebellion. It's not my character. It's nothing I have done. Jez alluded to this a bit before as we were at the end of our worship time. It's nothing you or I have done or not done. God chooses to show his love for us. He demonstrates his love for us long before that. And it's his character. There's a, a well-known a cliche that comes with every rom-com. I, I'm just sharing far too much about this. Which is, uh, oh, it, you know, when any couple want to break up, the guy or the girl goes, it's not you, it's me. And maybe you've heard that yourself. I, I, I've never had anything like that. Um, and they say to you, it's not you, it's not you, it's me. I feel like God would say to us, it's not you, it's not you, it's not your character, it's mine. I choose, I choose and I have chosen to demonstrate my love towards you. 
So that's the first bit of assurance Paul is telling us. God chose to demonstrate his love to us whilst we were opposed to him. He uses verse 6 and verse 8 to demonstrate that to us. Now, I was just desperately trying to think of an illustration to show us how that, what that looks like. I was like, oh, I really struggled. But I have, as I've said, I've got the three boys. Uh, Abby and I have three boys. And, uh, and I love each one of them immensely. And it's not based on anything that they've done. It's not because they're particularly good looking. It's not because they're particularly bright. It's not because they're especially good at football. It's because they're my sons. That's it. Abby and I co-created them together. And I love them because they are Abby and I's offspring. They're my children. And I love them. There is nothing that they can do to change that. Or there shouldn't be. I'm not quite as good as God. Uh, I'm much more fallible. The point is that all love is inferior compared to the love of God. Paul uses that that little thing in verse 7. I don't know if you, I I, kind of glazed past it. In verse 7, Paul talks about a man, uh, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly die. What Paul is wanting to show us here is people do sacrifice themselves for others. People will sacrifice themselves for a good person. People sacrifice themselves, as we saw not long ago, for this country. People die for, for what they believe is right. But what is interesting here is God uses, uh, Paul uses the illustration of a righteous person, someone who's, who does good, who does right things, who is impressive by his own stature or nature. And he uses the illustration of someone who's a good person, good to others, outworking, good to, kind to others. He says, people will sometimes die for either of these characters. But what is different is that God chooses to die, as we saw in verse 6 and verse 8, for those who are opposed to him. Paul is wanting to assure you, if God loves you when you are opposed to him, then how much more does he want to demonstrate his love to you when you turn to him? He continues to persuade us. We're going to read verse 9 through to 10. It says this, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more then, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Again, Paul is using the past to assure us of the future. But we start with this. Paul says, whilst we were enemies of God, in verse 10. In verse 9, he says, one day that we would face his wrath. Moshtabah last week talked about justification, the need for the things, our, our opposition towards God to be dealt with. He showed us that we have each uh, represented God badly or not chosen to, to live for him. We've decided our own plan, our own, to go with our own way of life. And in doing so, we have brought on ourselves God's judgment. God is good and God is just and therefore he must deal with it. You might say, well, I thought God was loving. You just told me in, from the first two verses that God loves me before I'd, whilst I was still in my sin. And that is true. But the, the problem is that our rebellion needs to be dealt with. And I would say it's the wrath of God that makes the love of God that much more glorious. I'll show you why. When we see God's hatred of rebellion... And the fact that we as rebels have hurt him and done everything we could to disobey him. 
we see how great his love is as he demonstrates us or he demonstrates it to rescue us and bring us back into a relationship. He doesn't want to destroy us. He doesn't want to uh, he doesn't want us to experience his wrath. And so what he does is he sets about a plan in which you and I don't ever have to experience that, but can turn to him and be rescued by him. He deals with our wrath. He deals with his wrath in Jesus. And that's what makes God's love for you, his pursuit of you, so much more glorious. It's the greatest love story. He pursues you and I over and over and over again. He sets about a plan in which he doesn't have to destroy you. He has to deal with your sin. He's just. He's good. He has to deal with the consequences of our rebellion. But he doesn't want you to face that. And so he sets about a plan in which he will rescue you and reconcile you to himself. He is committed to you. Now, I mentioned uh, 11 years ago, Abby and I got married. But I'll quickly tell you about my proposal because I believe that we can use that to help us to see what Paul is doing here. But so uh, six months before the uh, 22nd of November, uh, so sometime in May or June, sometime around then, I turned up at Tony and Jane's house. And uh, it was a Monday, and I remember I was very nervous. And I knocked on the door, and both Tony and Jane were in. And, uh, and, I, and I think Tony was upstairs, and Jane was in the kitchen. And Jane opened the door, and I followed her through to the kitchen. I said, hello, John, what are you doing here? I said, like, uh, actually, I've come to speak with Tony. And she was like, oh, that's all right. Today, Abby's not in. No. Okay, and there's this knowing smile come across her face. Tony, Tony comes down the stairs. Ah, oh, John wants to speak with you. Ah. Oh. Tony takes me into the living room. You all right, John? Yeah. Uh, so I, I would like your permission to marry your daughter, Abby. Uh, to which Tony's reply is fantastic. And if I ever have daughters, which I don't know, if I ever had daughters, I think I would choose something similar. Was uh, I remember this. Is Tony in the room? Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. Uh, so Tony's response, I don't know if you remember this, Tony, was, John, you can burn down my house. You can destroy my car, but if you did anything to hurt my daughter, he just left it hanging. <laughs> All right. It felt like five hours. Uh, 30 seconds later, of course, we love you, we'd love, we couldn't think of a better man, neither could I. Um, <laughs> and so uh, it takes me through. John wants to propose to Abby, Jane's beaming. Great, I couldn't think of a better guy. Oh, I agree. Um, and so there we go. So I've done that. That's on the Monday. On the Tuesday, yeah, it was the Monday. On the, uh, that afternoon, I was like, right, I'm done. I'm, doing, I'm going for this. So on Monday afternoon, I set up to the, where, the, the wing, ring shop, what do you call them, jewelers. Get to the jewelers, buy a ring. That's nice, that'll do. Great. Um, spend a fortune on a ring. That wasn't that much. Um, then, then I, and then I think, right, I'm committed to this. Wednesday, so Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or yeah, Wednesday was the next day that Abby was free. So I was like, Abby, we're going to go for breakfast on the beach. Why? Because <laughs> we are. Um, okay. So uh, I call Abby up, and we're going to go for breakfast on the beach. I pick her up in the morning, and it's raining. She's like, John, can we just stay in? Nope. <laughs> it's, it's raining, John. Yeah, I know. Okay, right. So anyway, we pick up some orange juice and some croissants. I sit on the, on the beach in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and this dustbin lorry pulls up, at which point I am fuming. Oh, what's this doing here? It's 
a Wednesday morning. Can a man and his girlfriend not enjoy a walk on the beach? And Abby's like, chill out, John. We're just having breakfast. It's like, yeah, yeah, just having breakfast. The dustbin lorry moves on. And I thought, right, finally, here we are. I sit, get down on one knee, humble myself before her, say, uh, will you marry me? And she said, yes, of course. Uh, so there we go, she married me. She, she said, yes. But I faced the opportunity to be rejected twice. As I turned up at Tony's house, there was the possibility that Tony might say, no, you scumbag, get out. I went and purchased a ring. It cost me money. And then I went and speak to Abby. I knelt down before her, giving her a position of power, essentially, over me. Will you marry me? She has the opportunity to turn me down. Of course she's not going to do that. But um, she has the opportunity to turn me down. I want to say the hard work has been done in the proposal. Once the proposal has been done, we can then look for, and there's planning and stuff to go on, but we can look forward with excitement and expectation that one day soon we shall be together, husband and wife. Now, it took work. It took me to stand before Tony, a possibility of rejection, um, for Abby, possibility of rejection. It spent money. It took work and time. But I was willing to go through that in order that Abby might be my wife one day. What I want to show is that this is more or less the, the structure that Paul is using. Paul wants us to know that same assurance as the fiancé knows that the wedding is coming. He uses this. He says, since therefore we have been justified by his blood. He says that in verse, oh golly, uh, verse 9. He says that, since therefore we have been justified by his blood. And in verse 10, he says this, Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Let's see this. If we've been justified, past tense, that has happened, yeah? If we've been justified, past tense, we will be saved, future tense. And the following verse, verse 10, Now that we've been reconciled, reconciled, past tense, we shall be saved, future tense. God wants us to see he has done the hard work. You can now be assured of his love. He died for you whilst you were opposed to him. He sacrificed himself, his blood, he bled for you. He has done the hard work. You can be assured he will save you from his wrath and you will be saved for his life. Do you see that? And is that making sense to us? It's a past, because this has happened, this will happen. And it's just that Paul's saying, be assured, be confident in the love of God. See how hard, see to what end he has set about your rescue plan. And how does he do it? Everything, every single verse that we read through there, apart from verse 7, the thing about the humans, every single verse is accomplished in Christ. God's rescue plan is fulfilled in Christ. And you might say, well, God's just telling Jesus what to do. Jesus says in John 10, I only do what I see the Father doing. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. God's plan for you and I, God's love is demonstrated. Verse 8, God demonstrates his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God demonstrates his love for you and I. In Jesus, he stops at nothing. He doesn't excuse our rebellion. He deals with it. He faces it. God's love is manifested. It's made real in Jesus. When you're assured 
and confident in the love of a spouse, you search nowhere else for that love. When you are confident that your wife loves you, cares for you, you can do nothing to damage that. (laughs) When you are confident in your wife's love, you don't look elsewhere for it. Whereas we are confident in the love of God, we don't need to look elsewhere. It produces in us uh, a security. We don't, have to be f- we don't have to fear rejection. God's not going to reject us. He embraced us when we were opposed to him. He can't reject you now. There's no fear of failure, no fear of disappointments. Disappointments in life will come. It can't separate you from God. You can be comforted in the knowledge that in those disappointments and hardships in life, there is someone out there who has done everything in his power to reconcile you to him. And he is able to strengthen us in every circumstance of life. In John, 1 John, he writes this, perfect love casts out fear. When we receive the commitment and the love of God, it does away with any fear of trying to fit in here or achieve that or get away with that. We don't need to fight for those things anymore. We know that we are loved. It's all about Jesus. It's the greatest love story of all time. Jesus himself tells stories to illustrate the love of God. He talks about a shepherd who leaves 99 sheep to find one. He talks about a father who throws a party when his disobedient and, uh, son comes back to him. He, he, he talks about a farmer. Jesus tells a story about a farmer who sells everything he has to buy a plot of land because he's got some treasure buried somewhere in it. There's a Lord who forgives a, a servant an astronomical debt. Jesus tells story after story to demonstrate to us how serious God is about our relationship, how serious he is about you and him, and how much he wants relationship with you. And then Jesus himself, hanging upon the cross, he pleads with his dad, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. God has wanted relationship with humanity from day one. It's what we were created for in the Garden of Eden. It's what we threw away. He's done everything he can to restore it. He has pursued us over and over and over again. Paul demonstrates that in this passage. He says, he has done everything. He fought for you when you were opposed to him. He died for you. See how what he's done in the past guarantees you for the future. In verse, verse 11 it says this, More than that, we also rejoice, not only this so, but we also boast in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice in God's rescue plan by receiving Jesus. We show how God, how glorious and thankful we are for his love as we receive Jesus. He's the one in which God's rescue plan is implemented. It's not our endeavors. It's not our hard work. It's his. It's not our impressiveness. It's his. It's not our character. It's his. It's God the Son, Jesus. It's his death that reconciles us and brings us back to relationship with God. It's the greatest gift we could ever receive. It's the greatest love story ever told. It's Christmas coming up in, what, four weeks? That's a scary thought. This is the greatest Christmas gift ever. 
And the only thing really is whether we choose to receive it. God's done this, and, and then the, we see what he's achieved, see what he wants. The, t- the offer is on the table. The present is there, ready to be unwrapped. The question is, do you want to unwrap it? Are you interested? Do you want to see, do you want that love? Do you want to receive that love? Do you want to know that love for yourself? We can either accept it, or we can pass over it. In a moment, we're going to break bread and take some wine. Remember what Jesus has done as his body was broken and his blood was shed for us, for the forgiveness of sins. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then this is a great opportunity for you to come back to that, to thank him, to kneel before him and say, God, thank you for the demonstration of your love in Jesus. Thank you that you did, you stopped at nothing. Thank you. And if you're not a follower, if you would say, I'm not a follower of Jesus, I'm just looking in this morning. If you say, I haven't made any commitments yet, then there's opportunity here. There's opportunity here. If while the people around you go to get the bread and the wine, there's opportunity for you to make that first step. Say, God, I want to receive your love. God, I want to thank you for your son Jesus. God, I want to turn to you now.